All right, a sermon text comes from Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 21. You can look on in your Bibles or it's printed in your bulletin. You know, there's something therapeutic about working on a jigsaw puzzle, right? Taking each little piece and looking at it, examining it, trying to figure out where it aligns up with all the other pieces and the feeling of success when you put that last piece in the puzzle. Today, our sermon text, our passage, isn't so much a puzzle piece to be examined, but rather something far, far better. It's, it's that picture on the box by which all the puzzle pieces seem to find their place. If we're ever to make sense of the little pieces, we must understand the big picture before us. Paul shows us in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of, of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, through Paul you have given us a picture of what you have done for this world. You You have... redeemed us. You have given us a hope. You've taken us from the reign of sin and death into the reign of your grace and love. Help us to more clearly understand this this morning. Fill us with your spirit so we may understand what you would have us to know and believe and press deep into our hearts, we pray. Amen. Now, I know sometimes when I quote like a song, it gets kind of stuck in your head, so I'm sorry if that happens, but um, 
one of the iconic songs from the 80s, I know some of you are a little young to know the 80s, but you maybe have to listen to it, uh, was Bonnie Tyler's song, Holding Out for a Hero. Do you remember that? All right, uh, here, here's some of the lyrics. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and I turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure and it's got to be soon and he's got to be larger in life. We all need a hero, but what kind of hero do we need? Some might say we just simply need a good example to follow, that we have within our own capability um, the ability to come up with solutions to all of life's problems. W.H. Auden, who was a British poet who was living in New York City in the 30s and 40s in his biography, recounts that he left his Christian upbringing and embraced secular humanism. That was until one day he went into a movie house in the 1930s and he watched a Third Reich propaganda film. He was frightened to see how the people in the audience got so wrapped up in the movie and they started to cheer for the Nazis, and they yelled, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. He had thought that with just the right education and the right cultural setting, we could all move beyond the barbarism and the inhumanity and the calamity around us. But this one event shattered that for him. He came to see that without a biblical conception of sin, he couldn't account for what he had just seen. He didn't have the resources to meet what he saw. In the end, he returned to his Christian roots and found his hope there. Now, about the same time, on a completely other side of the world, not in a movie theater, but in a Russian concentration camp in one of the gulags there, there was a man, another man, observing the same sufferings and atrocities of the world the same ones that riled up that crowd in the theater in New York. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Observing the cruelty and the inhumanity around him, he could have thought what? The problem is the other people. If we simply just get rid of the other people, the world would be all right. Instead, he reasoned and concluded the following. Listen closely. If only it were that simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Listen to what he says. But the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Auden and Solzhenitsyn were confronted with the fact that the world is the way it is because we are the way we are. 
and having the right upbringing or credentials or education or experiences won't fix it. We are all, we are all both victims and victimizers in this world. And so we need more than an example. We need a hero. And he's got to be larger than life. Enter Jesus. That's Paul's point here in our text. Paul is contrasting two men who represent two humanities, the merely human and the more than human human. Paul paints a picture of our predicament that picture on the box of the jigsaw puzzle box, a picture in which we're to find our own puzzle piece. The picture of our predicament is that we all share complete and total solidarity with that first man, Adam. And because we all share this solidarity with Adam, we will not be able to find a hero here on earth that could even begin to dream of what we need. What Paul shows us is that we're all born into this tragedy of Adam, which he has brought into this world. But then also that a more greater Adam, a second Adam, Jesus Christ, has triumphed on our behalf. And so out of the realm of sin and death, the triumph of the second Adam brings us into the realm of of grace and life. Here's the big point we're going to see this morning. God's much more abounding love triumphs over sin and death and brings God's people into a new reality of grace and love and life. We're going to see it in three areas. We're going to look at the reign of sin, the triumph of grace, and then the reign of grace. First, the reign of grace. The big idea here is this. We all share in the guilt and the futility of the first Adam. Now, let me ask you this. Are you Bond or born? Do you resonate best with James Bond or are you more a Jason uh, Bourne type person? Bond is polished and pedigreed. He's confident and sure of himself. Jason Bourne is still trying to figure out who he is. He's come to realize he's got a a dark past and a bad history. Though we like to think we're cut from the same cloth as James Bond, the truth and reality that Paul is showing us here this morning is that we're actually more like Jason Bourne. Like Bourne, there's something about us that we've lost touch with that explains why we all experience the world as we do. And it points us to the hero that we need. Paul describes just how bad our circumstances are, and he says that all humanity is under the reign of sin and death. Look at verse 21. Paul says, sin reigned in death. And in verse 14, yet death reigned. And in verse 12 through 14, Paul explains this this reign of sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned. How did the world get so bad? The Bible says that sin has intruded God's good creation. And the harsh reality is that that not one person ever born has been exempt from this reign of sin. 
We all experience it universally. Maybe not all equally, but we all experience it. What Paul here is describing is something that's called original sin. And what he's saying is that you're not a sinner because at some point in the past you messed up and you committed a sin and now, darn it, you're a sinner. No, he is saying that we all are, by nature, sinners, so that we cannot help but sin. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times in your life when you and I do bold and noble things, very very James Bondish things, right? We, we can and we do, and we applaud people around us who do. But the greater question we need to get into our minds is, is, isn't so much about the good things that we've done, but rather, why is it that we cannot help but do wrong from time to time? We know the good we ought to do, and yet at times we don't do it. Now, many people today insist that people are born good. Now, if you insist that people are born good, and I used to feel this way myself. I totally get where you're coming from. Um, If you insist that all people are born good, let me ask you this. How come it is you have never met a perfect person in your life? You never have. And why is it that in your own and in your mind you don't expect that you ever will? It's not because we're all born good. It's because we, of this reality that Paul is sharing with us. The reign of sin is real. We try to ignore it. We try to write it off as some sort of mythological religious nonsense. But no other explanation does justice to the facts on the ground. How did this reign of sin come upon us? In verse 12, do you see what Paul does? He gives us a chain reaction of sin. There's three chains there. First, sin came into the world through one man. That's Adam. And then when sin came into the world, so too came death. And then chain three is, and the sin and death then spreads to every person who's ever been born, except Jesus, of course. Now, today people will mock you and ridicule you if you say you believe in a literal Adam and Eve. But it's interesting. Scientists, DNA researchers, have come to discover that every single person alive can trace back their genetic DNA to to one man and one woman. And we also know that it isn't just some mythological, you know, uh, Adam that we're referring to here. Jesus himself referred to Adam and Eve as real, true, living people. And then our passage itself, it wouldn't make any sense if Jesus is, if they're talking about one real person, Jesus, and some mythological person, Adam. It just doesn't make sense. No, Adam was a real historical figure. We share his DNA. But more important than that, we share his sin. Adam was the head of the human race. Who he was and what he did impacts every one of us. You remember the story. It's in Genesis chapter Two and three. God placed Adam in the garden. And God first, first he didn't say don't eat of the fruit. What did he say? God said, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden. The first command was a positive command. Adam, you are free to enjoy life. And the second command was cautionary and negative. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die spiritually and physically. God gave Adam the, the freedom to, to thrive and live in God's presence and for God's glory. He was given autonomy, freedom to flourish as he saw fit. God gave Adam only one restriction, 
Why, why would God say to Adam not to eat from the tree? Well, in one sense, yeah, it was, it was, it was a test. Perhaps if he passed, we don't know. Perhaps if he passed the test, he would be allowed to eat from the tree of life and live for eternal in a, in a good state. But another way, the command was given to, to cause Adam to, to be humble. Adam and all of his children and offspring were, were to walk in humility before God. At some point, Adam concluded that God was withholding something good from him. And in the greatest act of rebellion and betrayal, Adam defied the good and loving creator. In an instant, sin, which had never been a part of God's good creation, had entered into it and defiled it. Adam experienced physical, uh, spiritual death. He was separated from God. He now ran and hid, and he, he had to cover himself. He was naked and ashamed, and he found himself blaming others. Eventually, he died a physical death. But Paul's point here isn't that sin just came into one man's life. No, Adam was functioning as the head of a family. And so through him, sin and death has come into uh, us all. It has broken into God's creation and it affects us all. See, what Adam did in the garden didn't just impact himself, but the whole human race. This is what theologians call federalism, right? A- Adam was our federal head of the, an entire human race. He was our representative, kind of like we send congressmen and senators off to Washington, D.C. to hopefully represent us. But whether they represent us well or not, uh, we come under the outcomes of their actions and decisions. Now, many people take offense to this. They say, you know, that's just not fair. How, how could God do that to somebody? I, I remember before I became a Christian, that was one thing I used to get me angry. Christians would say, well, you know, Adam sinned. We all share in sin. I used to get so ticked off. I'm like, I didn't ask Adam to represent me, you know? What kind of God would hold me accountable to something somebody did so many thousands of years ago? But what we must come to realize is that we all are bound up in Adam. The grammar in chapter 12 is helpful. You guys like grammar? You guys like, we've got any uh, English teachers here, maybe? No? All right, well, I'll move quickly through this one then. Okay. In ver- at the end of verse 12, we read, So death spread to all men because all sinned. He didn't say because all of us are sinning. We're doing it currently. He says we all sinned. It, it's the, in the Greek tense, it's the aorist tense. Aorist tense um, speaks of something that is a completed task or action in the past. It's done. Like, like yesterday, I raked the leaves. I uh, got them all out of the yard. Never mind. So that's a past tense, right? It's done. Uh, never mind the fact that, of course, leaves fell overnight and we got more work to do today. But it's a past act, completed in the past. The grammar of this passage tells us that we all sinned somehow, in some way, when Adam first sinned. That in some way we were, our lives were, were bound up in that previous action of Adam as he represented us. We all sinned in Adam, past tense. I know it's hard to comprehend. I'm not saying I can give you all the answers to this. But um, even St. Augustine rightly said that. Here's what he said. He said, seeking a rational explanation for the origin of sin is like, listen to this. It's like trying to see darkness or hear silence. It is hard, isn't it? But do you have eyes to see this world? Do you see your own culpability? You know, we're hell-bent on insisting that we're fine human beings. It's just the social structures that are to blame. 
and we're raising kids who cannot even see their own sinfulness. William Kilpatrick at Boston College writes about one of his colleagues. Um, His colleague once asked members of his philosophy class to write anonymous essays about a personal struggle over right and wrong, good and evil. Most of the students, however, were unable to complete the assignment. Why, he asked. Well, they said, and apparently this was said without irony, we haven't done anything wrong. The human heart is so corrupt that it cannot see its own corruption. This reality exists because of the reign of sin. The reign of sin is everywhere present. Every human being is born in Adam. Sin has entered into God's good creation. People made in God's image and made for his glory all fall short and use God-given gifts for God-damning ways. Let me ask you this. If you were God, what would you do? If you created something so grand and glorious, uh, and you created life where there was no life, and, and that life rejected you, and stole the gifts that you had given it, and defiled your good creation, what would you do? Isn't it our tendency to, would be to just, just crumble it up like some, uh, botched art project? <laughs> just throw it away? Not so God. What we see next is exhilarating. It's so unexpected. Surprisingly, God steps in. God intervenes in a very heroic way. And it's not a triumph of his righteous anger, but rather it is a triumph of his loving grace. In verses 15 through 19, we see the triumph of God's grace. And what we see here, the big idea here we see is that the only power that can break the grip of the reign of sin is the power of God. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Though we deserve condemnation, God provides an alternative, one we do not deserve. Grace means that God loves us without a cause. We don't earn it. It's a free gift. That's why Paul Five times in three verses. Five times uses the phrase free gift. Look at that in verse 15 and through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The first aspect of this triumph is that it is a free gift of God's grace. For all who see that they've come under the reign of sin, God has a free gift for you. 
It's only when you finally see that you cannot work your way back into that relationship with God. It's only finally then that you realize you need a free gift. Paul says we have that from God in Christ Jesus. It's a gift of grace. We see that it's a gift of grace in verse 15. Paul says that this gift results from the grace of God and by the uh, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, Paul calls it the uh, abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Understand this, the free, gra- the free gift of grace that, that flows to us through Jesus Christ comes from an abundance of God's love. The word abound or abundance appears three times in our passage. Understand this, Listen closely. You cannot out-sin God's love. This is an important point Paul is making here. Yes, Paul says, we are far more sinful than we ever dared try to imagine. I mean, if you were able to just stack up your own sin and pile it, I mean, I don't know how my, mine would go pretty high. I don't know about yours, you're probably better than me. But if you could just stack up everything wrong, every uh, word that you said carelessly, you just stack it all up, that would be, for us, um, unbearable. Imagine if you were to stack up all the sins of all the people who ever lived on the world. Think about that. Every little sin, every big sin. They stack them one on top of the other. Billions and billions. Every careless word, every abuse of the sex trafficker, every angry outburst, every gossip, every lie, every denial of God. Every time, every, every person who ever lived uh, bowed before the altar of success or happiness or fame. If you were to stack them up, how high would they be? I don't know. Beyond fathoming, perhaps. But Paul says this, stack them all up, stack them as high as you can, much more. Much more does the grace of God abound. It's illogical to us. Don't let the beauty of those words escape you. Verse 15 again, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Understand this, the much more grace of God is his response to our much more amassing of sin. Try to understand this. How is it that God triumphs over the sin of the world? Not like you or me. Uh, Here on earth, um, you know, our response to to sin in the world is to triumph over it, you know, uh, with with the rule of might. Uh, We want, you know, like like, uh, Solzhenitsyn didn't decide. You know, you can't just, you know, we want to just kick all the bad people and put them in a concentration camp. Just leave the good ones around, right? That's how we reply. Show them who's boss. Our response is to turn up the heat, but God's response is to turn up his love. So God doesn't triumph over the sin in this world with the power of his fist, but with his much more abounding love. Which brings us to what God has done for us in Christ. God sent a second Adam. Did you pick up on that in the passage? I know in 1 Corinthians he actually uses the word second Adam. But here we see it. There's another, there's another one. In verse 14, we read Adam, who was a type of the one to come. There was one to come who Adam in some way typified or pointed to. This says there's another one that's going to be in some way like Adam, but 
not quite like Adam. There's a one to come who's to be a representative for all mankind. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam would succeed. The second Adam is, of course, Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed and brought sin and death, Christ succeeded and triumphed over sin and death. And if we will let him, he will become our new representative. He will become the new Adam that represents you and me. He will be our federal head. Paul contrasts the one-man Adam with the one-man Jesus. Verse 18, Therefore, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification of all men. Do you see the logic there? And again in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What is this obedience that Paul's talking of? Well, theologians, I don't know if you're taking notes, but theologians have uh, speak of two different aspects of obedience. There's active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. Jesus' active obedience was him living the perfect life without sin. Jesus was and is the only person we can point to and say he really was innocent. Because of his divine birth, he didn't have a sin nature that you and I share. And in obedience, he lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. He, was, he, he is a new Adam to represent fallen man. He was perfectly righteous. What we lack, he fully is. So he lived in perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father in an active way. But he was also obedient in a passive way. Jesus allowed things, horrible things, to happen to him. See, there was no other way. His passive obedience is where he allowed himself to suffer for you and me. He didn't deserve it, but he entered into it. He allowed it to happen. He passively took the sins of the world upon himself. He passively bore the wrath of God upon himself. He passively allowed himself to be sacrificed in our place, and he passively rose from the grave to prove his justification in ours. So it's the perfect obedience of Jesus, the second Adam, that has triumphed over sin and death. And so in a sense, you know, Bonnie Tyler was right. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. He's got to be fresh from the fight. We need a hero. He's got to be larger than life. God gives us the only hero who can save us. Trust in Christ and he will be your representative. It's God's gift to you. It flows from his much more abounding grace. Now for the reign of grace. God's solution for the reign of sin isn't laws to reign us in, to make us nice, good people, to whip us into shape. No, God's solution is grace. Isn't it true that man's solution to sin is just to to enact laws so it never happens again, right? I wonder if you were to stack up all the laws that man has come up with over all these years, stack them up. I have a feeling it'd be almost as high as all the sins of mankind. That's our natural tendency. Let's create a law. 
Some of our laws are quite silly. In Quitman, Georgia, chickens are not allowed to cross the road. I guess they'll never find out why. In Texas, it's illegal to sell your eyeballs. Guess you'll have to go to Oklahoma. I don't know. In North Carolina, it's against the law to sing off-key. Glad that's not true in Watermill. I would be, wouldn't be able to sing. In Idaho, it is illegal for a man to give his fiance a box of candy that weighs more than 50 pounds. I guess she's got to fit in the dress. I don't know. In Arizona, if you're found stealing soap, you must wash yourself with the bar until it's been completely used up. I don't know who's monitoring that. I don't know. Um, Here's one I resonate with. I'm all for this next one. I'm going to go on the record. In Nebraska, it is not legal for a tavern owner to serve beer unless a nice kettle of soup is also brewing. All right. Man's solution is to force laws upon society in order to rein in foolishness and sinfulness. Some think that that's what God does too, that God gave people laws so that we would toe the line and so that sin would decrease. Paul says something shocking in verse 20. Did you see what he says? Now the law came, drumroll, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul is saying that the presence of God's law doesn't decrease sin, but actually increases it. See, there's something insidious about fallen man that as soon as we know something's forbidden by the law, we want to do it. I have a feeling Adam wanted nothing to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil until God said he couldn't have it. Then all of a sudden he's thinking, oh boy, wonder what I'm missing out on. Hey, I never noticed it before, but that fruit... That looks really good for Edie. See, until God gives you a new heart that beats for him, his law can only have one effect upon you. You will sin all the more. So God's solution to, to the reign of sin in this world isn't to heap more laws upon his people, but to offer more grace. Do you remember how Paul began the letter to the church in Rome? I know it was a few weeks back, but how did it begin? Did, did Paul say, say, greetings and law to you? Did he? No, he didn't. You're still looking at me like I'm weird. Stop that. He didn't do that. Paul wrote to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God. See, it doesn't matter how much our sin increases. God's grace abounds all the more. 
know, some of you are thinking, well, what about, what about, what about? That's coming in the next few sermons. <laughs> For now, we need to get under the understanding of what this reign of grace is. In the next chapter, we're going to read these words. Chapter 6, 14. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The work of Jesus Christ, if you would but trust him to be your representative, will take you from the reign of sin and death into the reign of, of, of grace and love and life. If you would but let him and trust him to do that. But until Christ returns, or until you enter heaven, if you are in Christ, you will continue to sin. I'm right, aren't I? <laughs> But God, by his grace, has brought you into the reign of his grace, where you are no longer defined by your sins. God has graciously decided to define you, not by your unrighteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. I have a pair of shooting glasses that have yellow lenses. And, of course, you would imagine everything I see through those glasses has this kind of bright yellowish tint to it. I imagine if they were red, they would have, everything that I see would have a reddish tint to it. God, when he looks at his people, he sees them with Christ-tinted lenses. Oh, he knows who you are. He knows what you have done. But he has decided to see you through Christ. And he is determined to say, I see my son's righteousness in them. This is God's idea. This is his plan. This is his much more abounding grace. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see how this reign of grace makes us different. But suffice it for now, God has done something beyond our earthly imaginations. He has triumphed over the reign of sin, which leads to eternal death. And he's delivered us into his reign of grace, which leads to eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Jesus is our Lord. He is on a throne. He reigns. That's what kings do. They reign. His, his um, kingdom right now on earth here. He rules over a world that is broken and sinful. But one day he will fix it forever. That is his promise. Until then, we live lives in a broken, sin-filled world as those people who God has determined not to hold our sins against us. Regrettably, from time to time, we will sin. But thankfully, God has gifted us with this much more abounding Grace. I began this morning by saying this passage isn't so much a jigsaw puzzle piece, but rather the actual box itself. But actually, I think we've come to see there's two jigsaw puzzle boxes with pictures on the front, right? Hopefully, you've come to see that your puzzle belongs somewhere. Your piece, rather. Where does your puzzle piece belong? Do you, are you still under the realm and the reign of sin and death? 
We learned this morning that Christ is the hero we long for. He is the one who lived the life you should have lived and died the death that you deserve so that he can be your representative. Trust in him and Christ will take you from that picture to a new picture, a picture where there's a realm and a reign of grace and life and, and mercy and love. Those are the two options before us. There's no middle ground. You can't like say, well, I lost the peace, right? No, it's, it's in there somewhere, all right? What picture does your puzzle piece belong to? Do you belong to the reign of sin? If that's true, then turn to Christ. Do you belong to the reign of grace? Well, if so, remember how God sees you. He is, de- he is determined to, to lavish his much more abounding grace upon you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word before us. Sometimes your words are so illogical. Uh, We need your spirit to understand how how your response to sin is much more grace. We're We're not like that. We're not like you. Help us to be more like you. Help us to be people who are kind and gracious, um, willing to abound in love towards others around us. May we walk with the reality that we have been taken from uh, a kingdom of sin and death into your glorious kingdom of grace and life. Um, Strengthen us, we pray. Amen.